Warning, this podcast is rated X for adult themes and language. It's not safe for work, definitely not safe for children, possibly not safe for some adults. Escape Pod 248 July 8, 2010 Spar by Kish Johnson Welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Mer Lafferty, your host and editor. Remember me? I was invited to introduce our final Hugo short story offering, and I'm delighted to come back into the hosting duties. Sex and sci-fi stories have been approached from countless directions. There's the classic cliche of the last man, last woman, whose names are Adam and Eve. There's cyber sex, android sex, love bots, and aliens needing to find a place to put their seed, as if human wombs are generic fertile soil for any form of life. Anne McCaffrey explored it in her Freedom series, and Pat Cadigan explored it in Escape Pod 237, Roadside Rescue, one of my favorite stories in recent episodes. We come from sex. Whether it's something to be ashamed of or revel in, there's no denying we'd die off without it, which I suppose is why we want it so much. But this brings us to the last in our Hugo series, Kids Johnson's Spar. Johnson has been publishing short stories since 1987 and has won multiple awards. She's won the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award, the International Association for the Fantastic in the Arts Crawford Award for Best New Fantasy Novelist, the World Fantasy Award, and has been nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula. And this year, Spar won the Nebula for Best Short Story. This story was originally published on Clark's World Fabulous E-Zine which also has a podcast. Spar is released on this podcast, and we're using the original recording by Kate Baker, generously given with permission of the fine folks at Clark's World. They publish some awesome stories there by some of the best contemporary authors, such as Jay Lake, Kat Rambo, Ekaterina Sedia, and Tobias Buckel. If you like Escape Pod, I don't know why you're not already listening to Clark's World. So, make sure the kids are out of the room, and the door is locked, and the phone is turned off. It's story time. Spar by Kidge Johnson In the tiny lifeboat, she and the alien fuck endlessly, relentlessly. They each have ins and outs. Her ins are the usual. Eyes, ears, nostrils, mouth, cunt, ass. Her outs are also the common ones. Fingers and hands and feet and tongue, arms, legs, things that can be thrust into other things. The alien is not humanoid. It is not bipedal. It has cilia. It has no bones, or perhaps it does and she cannot feel them. Its muscles, or what might be muscles, are rings and not strands. Its skin is the color of dusk and covered with a clear, thin slime that tastes of snot. It makes no sounds. She thinks it smells like wet leaves in winter, but after a time she cannot remember that smell, or leaves, or winter. Its ins and outs change. There are dark slashes and permanent knobs that sometimes distend, but it is always growing new outs, hollowing new ins. It cleaves easily in both senses. It penetrates her a thousand ways. She penetrates it as well. The lifeboat is not for humans, 
The air is too warm, the light too dim. It is too small. There are no screens, no books, no warning labels, no voices, no bed or chair or table, or control board or toilet, or telltale lights or clocks. The ship's hum is steady. Nothing changes. There is no room. They cannot help but touch. They breathe each other's breath. If it breathes, she cannot tell. There is always an out and an in, something wrapped around another thing, flesh coiling and uncoiling inside, outside, making spaces, making space. She is always wet. She cannot tell whether this is the slime from its skin, the oil and sweat from hers, her exhaled breath, the lifeboat's air, or come. Her body seeps. When she can, she pulls her mind away. But there is nothing else, and when her mind is disengaged, she thinks too much. Which is, at all. Fucking the alien is less horrible. She does not remember the first time. It is safer to think it forced her. The wreck was random. A mid-space collision between their ship and the aliens. Simultaneously a statistical impossibility and a fact. She and Gary just had time to start the emergency beacon and claw into their suits before their ship was cut in half. Their lifeboat spun out of reach. Her magnetic boots clung to part of the wreck. His did not. The two of them fell apart. A piece of debris slashed through the leg of Gary's suit to the bone. Through the bone. She screamed. He did not. Blood and fat and muscle swelled from his suit into vacuum. And out. The alien's vessel also broke into pieces, its lifeboat kicking free and the Waldos reaching out, pulling her through the airlock. In. Why did it save her? The Mariner's Code. She does not think it knows she is alive. If it did, would it try to establish communications? It is quite possible that she is not a rescued castaway. She is salvage or flotsam. She sucks her nourishment from one of the two hard intrusions into the featureless lifeboat, a rigid tube. She uses the other, a second tube, for whatever comes from her. Her shit and piss and vomit. Not her cum, which slicks her thighs to her knees. She gags a lot. It has no sense of the depth of her throat. Ins and outs. There is a time when she screams so hard that her throat bleeds. She tries to teach it words. Breast, she says. Finger. Cunt. Her vocabulary options are limited here. Listen to me, she says. Listen to me. Does it even have ears? The fucking never gets better or worse. It learns no lessons about pleasing her. She does not learn anything about pleasing it either. Would not if she could. And why? How do you please grass and why should you? She suddenly remembers grass, the bright smell of it in its perfect green, its cool, clean, soft feel beneath her bare hands. She finds herself aroused by the thought of grass against her hands, 
because it is the only thing that she has thought of for a long time that is not the alien or Gary or the ins and outs. But perhaps its soft blades against her fingers would feel just like the alien cilia. Her ability to compare anything with anything else is slipping from her because there is nothing to compare. She feels it inside, everywhere, tendrils moving in her nostrils, thrusting against her eardrums, coiled beside the corners of her eyes, and she sheathes herself in it. When an out crawls inside her and touches her in certain places, she tips her head back and moans and pretends it is more than accident. It is Gary. He loves me. It loves me. It is a he. It is not. Communication is the key, she thinks. She cannot communicate, but she tries to make sense of its actions. What is she to it? Is she a sex toy? A houseplant? A shipped wreck Norwegian sharing a spar with a monolingual Portuguese? A companion? A habit, like nail-biting or compulsive masturbation. Perhaps the sex is communication, and she just doesn't understand the language yet. Or perhaps there is no it. It is not like they cannot communicate, that she is incapable. It is that the alien has no consciousness to communicate with. It is a sex toy, a houseplant, a habit. On the starship with the name she cannot recall, Gary would read books aloud to her, science fiction, Melville, poetry. Her mind cannot access the plots, the words. All she can remember is a few lines from a sonnet. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Something, something, something. An ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark. She recites the words, an anodyne that numbs her for a time until they lose their meaning. She has worn them treadless, and they no longer gain any traction in her mind. Eventually, she cannot even remember the sounds of them. If she ever remembers another line, she promises herself she will not wear it out. She will hoard it. She may have promised this before, forgotten. She cannot remember Gary's voice. Fuck Gary, anyway. He is dead and she is here with an alien pressed against her cervix. It is covered with slime. She thinks that, as with toads, the slime may be a mild psychotropic drug. How would she know if she were hallucinating? In this world, what would that look like? Like sunflowers on a desk? Like Gary leaning across a picnic basket to place fresh bread in her mouth? bread is the first thing she has tasted that feels clean in her mouth and is not even real. Gary feeding her bread and laughing after a time the taste of bread becomes the taste of bread and then the words become mere sounds and stop meaning anything. On the off chance that this will change things she drives her tongue through its cilia, pulls them into her mouth and sucks them clean. 
She has no idea whether it makes a difference. She has lived forever in the endless reeking fucking now. Was there someone else on the alien ship? Was there a Gary lost now to space? Is it grieving? Does it fuck her to forget? Because it has forgotten. Or to punish itself for surviving. Or the other. For not. Or is this her? When she does not have enough ins for its outs, it makes new ones. She bleeds for a time and then heals. She pretends that this is a rape. Rape, at least, she could understand. Rape is an interaction. It requires intention. It would imply that it hates or fears or wants. Rape would mean she is more than a wine glass it fills. This goes both ways. She forces it sometimes. Her hands are blades that tear new ends. Her anger pounds at it until she feels its depths grow soft under her fist, as though bones or muscle or cartilage have disassembled and turned into something softer. And when she forces her hands into the alien, what she does, at least, is a rape. Or would be if the alien felt anything, responded in any fashion. Mostly... It's like punching a wall. She puts her fingers in herself because at least she knows what her intentions are. Sometimes she watches it fuck her, the strange coiling of its outs like a shockwave thrusting into her body, and this excites her and horrifies her, but at least it is not Gary. Gary, who left her here with this, who left her here, who left... One time, she feels something break loose inside the alien, but it is immediately drawn out of reach. When she reaches farther in to grasp the broken piece, a sphincter snaps shut on her wrist. Her arm is forced out. Around her wrist is a bruise like a bracelet for what might be a week or two. She cannot stop touching the bruise. The alien had the ability to stop her fist inside it at any time which means it makes a choice not to stop her, even when she batters things inside it until they grow soft. This is the only time she has ever gotten a reaction she understands. Stimulus. Response. She tries many times to get another. She forces her hands into it, kicks it, tries to tear its cilia free with her teeth, claws its skin with her ragged, filthy fingernails. But there is never again the broken thing inside, and never the bracelet. For a while, she measures time by bruises she gives herself. She slams her shin against the feeding tube, and when the bruise is gone, she does it again. She estimates it takes twelve days for a bruise to heal. She stops after a time because she cannot remember how many bruises there have been. She dreams of rescue, but doesn't know what that looks like. Gary, miraculously alive, pulling her free, eyes bright with tears. I love you, he says, his lips on her eyelids and his kiss, his tongue in her mouth inside her hands inside him. But that's the alien. Gary is dead. He got out. 
Sometimes she thinks that rescue looks like her opening the pod to the deep vacuum. But she cannot figure out the airlock. Her anger is endless. Relentless. Gary brought her here and then he went away and then left her with this thing that will not speak or cannot or does not care enough to or does not see her as something to talk to. On their third date, she and Gary went to an empty park. Wine, cheese, fresh bread in a basket. Bright sun and cool air and grass and a cloth to lie on. He brought Shakespeare. You'll love this, he said, and read it to her. She stopped him with a kiss. Let's talk, she said, about anything. But we are talking, he said. No, you're reading, she said. I'm sorry, I don't really like poetry. That's because you've never had it read to you, he said. She stopped him at last by taking the book from his hands and pushing him back, her palms in the grass, and he entered her. Later, he read to her anyway. If it had just been that. They were not even his words. Now they mean nothing, and are not even sounds in her mind. And now there is this thing that cannot hear her or does not choose to listen, until she gives up trying to reach it, and only reaches into it, and bludgeons it in herself, seeking a reaction. Any reaction. I fucking hate you, she says. I hate fucking you. The lifeboat decelerates. Metal clashes on metal, gaskets seal. The airlock opens overhead. There is light. Her eyes water helplessly and everything becomes glare and indistinct dark shapes. The air is dry and cold. She recoils. The alien does not react to the light, the hard air. It remains inside her and around her. They are wrapped. They penetrate one another a thousand ways. She is warm here, or at any rate not cold, half lost in its flesh, wet from her ends. It's outs. In here, it is not too bright. A dark something stands outlined in the portal. It is bipedal. It makes sounds that are words. Is it human? Is she? Does she still have bones? A voice? She has not used them for so long. The alien is hers. She... Is its. Nothing changes. No. She pulls herself free of its tendrils and climbs. Out. And that was our story. The funny thing about sex is that no matter how you feel about it, someone else is going to be offended by how you approach it, and someone else is going to think that you're vanilla. But we're all convinced that we're normal. The thing I like about Spar is the honesty. Sex with something you are sure is sentient but you can't communicate with whatsoever 
can be nothing more than another bodily function, like defecating. I was at a workshop where Orson Scott Card said the first thing we judge when we meet someone new at the base instinct level is gender. Another friend who's perhaps more crude and blunt says it's our ancient lizard brain that looks at someone and says, can I fuck it? If your brain says yes, then looks for what you may have in common that could facilitate that fucking. And if you can't fuck it, then you move on through the flowchart. That's what I imagine our alien character was doing in this story. It had the same lizard brain, and it decided the answer was yes. There are a couple of announcements I'd like to make, and none of them involve me swearing. Escape Pod is open again to submissions. You can see our guidelines at our site, and please follow the guidelines, please. Secondly, we have the pleasure of saying that another fiction podcast, Starship Sofa, is nominated for a Hugo for Best Fanzine. If you're not a listener to Starship Sofa, you're missing out on some fantastic fiction, but also news, nonfiction, and essays. It's a wonderful thing Tony Smith has going on over there, and if you're a Hugo voter, I ask that you consider them. Not only is it deserving, but it would also be a huge shot of credibility for all science fiction podcasts. Soon I'll be doing a metacast to talk about the status of Escape Pod and where I'd like to take it. It'll be sort of an introduction, because I really haven't said hi yet. Until then, Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors. We remain a paying market to our authors, and if you liked this week's story, we hope you'll consider leaving a donation via the PayPal link at our site, escapepod.org, to help out. If the economy has you in its vile grip, we'd also just appreciate you spreading the word on Twitter, Facebook, your blog, or heck, tell somebody on the street about us. Also check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod for Horror and Podcastle for Fantasy, at their .org domains. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. And I would like to give a public thank you to Dave Thompson and Peter Wood for doing all the work regarding the Hugo episodes. We couldn't have done this without you. So that was our show for this week. We close with a quote from Emily Post's Etiquette from 1922 on travel. But in order to do nothing that can annoy or give offense, it is necessary for us to consider the point of view of those with whom we come in contact. And in traveling abroad, it is necessary to know something of foreign customs which affect the foreign point of view, if we would be thought as cultivated and charming people instead of an uncivilized and objectionable one. We'll see you next week with a new story. Until then, be mighty. <laughs>